Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode 112. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about biblical meditation. But before we do that, as always, we have some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about some books. All right. So this week, I'm going to talk about a book I've recently read. It's called Body of Proof by Jeremiah Johnston. The subtitle is not in front of me. Sorry about that. It is uh, Seven Reasons to Believe in the Resurrection of Jesus Christ and Why It Matters. Uh, This is an apologetics book. It's actually not out yet. I have a pre-release copy so I can write a review on it. Um, But I'm going to talk about it and I'll give it a ranking. This book walks through evidences to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which as a believer, if you're listening to this and you're a believer, you might wonder why you would need evidences for that. But historically, uh, early on in church history, one of the main arguments for the veracity or the historicity of Christ was his fulfilled prophecies. Um, But even going back to like Acts 17 and Paul at Mars Hill, he's arguing for the resurrection. The resurrection's always been very central to Christianity. And so this book walks you through seven reasons that you should believe in the resurrection. What's interesting is that Jeremiah Johnston, uh, who writes this book, I know it's the name he uh, he's been doing this for a while. He presented at an academic conference in 2012. I believe he said he was the only non Craig presenting William Lane, Craig, Craig Hazen. uh, There's another guy like a who's who of apologists. So it was pretty, pretty impressive, but and all of their names were Craig. Yeah. They either had a first name or a last name that was Craig. It was really, and, and, and as an apologetics guy, like I knew them all. I'm like, wow, that's pretty impressive. So in, in the book, he gives you seven reasons to believe in the resurrection. And as a believer, you might think, well, I already believe. I, why do I need this? But he's writing this book to bolster Christians if they have questions, but then also so that you could give this to an unbeliever and you could see why this is a historically reliable truth. And he has some really unique additions. So Gary Habermas is the reigning guy when it comes to the resurrection argument. Um, He writes the foreword for this. And there's like a a unique argument he adds on the like psychology of why they would even create a fake resurrection account. In Judaism, everyone would have thought of the resurrection in the final eschaton. And so you wouldn't need to make this like he resurrected from the grave right then idea. Uh, there's a couple of really unique ways to look at it. that would make it hard to believe it was brought up or it was made up. And then in his final chapters, he looks at the way second and third century Christians wrongly tried to make the resurrection story more plausible. So part of it is that women were at the tomb and they were not considered trustworthy at the time. And so these later century apologists are like, well, yes, but there was also, and they like include the Jewish leadership and they include Pilate, and it's all this stuff to make it sound much more believable to a Roman, that world audience. And he says, we all know that that's not biblical, but that actually demonstrates the actual veracity of the resurrection story. Because if humans had made it up, that's how they would have made it up. It was a really interesting argument. So uh, if you're looking for it, I think it's a fun read. I have a pre-release copy and I'm not trying to dig the book, but it's just needs a copy editor. Um, it, it's got a lot of like things. So I think by the time the book comes out, it'll be very good. So I probably get a six on the goodness scale. 
um, it's a helpful addition to the apologetics uh, corpus. You know, speaking of Craig's, probably my favorite Craig is Dr. Craig Keck. That's right. Who uh, he- vicariously takes pies <laughs> in the face for you. What a guy. Yeah. He did. If you don't know what we're referring to, that's just fine. It is. So, <laughs> uh, so I'm going to talk about uh, my book today. I've been working on 12 discipleship questions and kind of the series we've been doing on the podcast. That's kind of most of my non-doctoral program academic work lately has been trying to now start going back through those chapters and are they internally cohesive? Do they make sense in their own section? And that, you know, trying to catch all the editing, you know, uh, problems. And so uh, I think it was probably the last, I guess it wasn't last week, it'd be two weeks ago now. I sat down and tried to comb through the introduction and um, it's, it, it, I don't really have much to say about it, but I've been trying to think through how do you, how do you introduce a book like this? Like what, what is it actually trying to accomplish? And the introduction I think is trying to give the context of what discipleship is. It's like when you read a title, 12 discipleship questions and you hear discipleship, what do you think of when you hear that term? And the reality is that, you know, you could pull you know, probably all of the professors on our campus and you get different answers. You know, like what, what exactly do we mean when we say discipleship? And I think there's a lot that falls under that umbrella. And specifically, I think what we do as faculty, as teachers, teaching is discipleship. You cannot disciple without knowledge transfer. That is irrevocable. You can't just not have a body of truth that you're communicating. That's all throughout the New Testament that the doctrine, the teaching is very central to the idea. But I think all of us here would agree that it's not just knowledge transfer, it's character transformation. And I and I think that's the point of the introduction is that the 12 discipleship questions is not a content heavy book. It's not trying to describe all the avenues of theology that you could go down. It's not trying to give all the knowledge. It's trying to focus in on how the character transformation actually happens and and who's doing that transformation. And if that who is not us specifically, if it's not all of my effort, how much effort do I put into the endeavor? And, and that trying, so it was good to try and think through the scope of what that book is accomplishing to try and think through how does the character transformation aspect of discipleship actually happen? And uh, so, yeah, that's what I've been working on. Uh, so that's what I've got for books and business. And hopefully soon that uh, that would actually be published too. So if you want something to pray about, you can pray about that book, listeners. For my books and business today, I have Retractions, Cultivating Humility After Humiliation by Pat Nemers. Uh, this is a local uh, author and pastor. He actually contacted me and recommended uh, that I read his book. We have it in our bookstore as well, so you can pick up a copy. Um, so I took him up on it. I said, sure, I'll read it. He said it would be very beneficial to me. The book is kind of like his story. Uh, it's kind of like a memoir. As he's made decisions through the years, he's made mistakes. And so what does he want to talk about? His retractions. So there's some real benefit to that. A lot of times, uh, we as pastor, well, I'm not a pastor, but as ministry leaders, we want to 
well, speak and teach the truth. And there's been a few issues where um, Nemers has mentioned that he didn't speak the truth. And so he insulted somebody publicly. And so then he publicly asked for that person's forgiveness in front of the whole church. And so um, in that respect, it's a really good book and uh, something that we can emulate that when we do sin, that's exactly what we need to do. Uh, And that's humiliating. So that's why cultivating humility after humiliation. Uh, And so there's some some good stuff there. There are a couple of things that I don't like about it. Uh, In chapter four, he talks about the lure, the lure of legalism. And he has a quote from one of his parishioners, stick with the Bible sins, pastor. There's plenty of them you can preach. That's kind of like the subtitle. I'm going to read a little bit from page 43. Back then, I was zealous about all things spiritual, but not always biblical. I loved the Bible and prided myself on preaching it accurately and fervently, but I also took extra biblical positions on dress, movies, marriage, divorce, alcohol, who did and didn't baptize, and yes, music. The steady stream of people coming to know Jesus, being baptized, by me, of course, and filling up the church felt wonderful, exciting, and glorious. So he talks about these various things that he really uh, retracted from. That's really what it comes down to. And as you work through the book, uh, these, these things, particularly three of them, the uh, alcohol, which is the main topic of the lure of legalism, uh, divorce, and then music, kind of recur a few times. Now, I want you to understand there's no exegetical or even philosophical argument uh, for Nemers's view. All he's doing is telling his story. So it's more of an emotional appeal than any kind of a logical argument. In fact, he'll even admit this, like on the divorce and remarriage issue, he spends a great deal of time on that uh, issue. And he says, you know, I used to teach it one way. And he even tells a story here, actually, I've got it here. Um, This is page 128. He says, previously, this is somebody in his church who had previously heard him teach one one position on divorce and remarriage, and then he teaches the other view. He states, previously, I had taught her and the whole congregation on this topic with equal conviction, but from a very different point of view. In fact, my assistant, who had recently joined the staff, discovered a tape of me preaching years earlier on marriage and divorce. I asked him, what do you think? His reply, very convincing. And then he just states, so there was that. (laughs) It's kind of like you just get a little bit of a chuckle out of that because, I mean, he preached convincingly about one position on divorce and remarriage. And then he says, you know what? I really wasn't preaching the scriptures. I was preaching what somebody else said the scriptures meant, which is kind of is like, "Uh, okay. But I want you just to realize what Numbers is kind of doing here in this book. It's not a logical argument for his view, his new view of divorce or remarriage. It's simply his retraction, where his path is leading him to a different place now. He was one place, and now he's in another place. So his retractions, while it's about humility, it's really also about like music and his view on music. Uh, alcohol and his view on uh, marriage and divorce. So I want to just kind of talk about the whole alcohol thing, and I might talk about this one in a future episode too. Uh, Okay, so on page 45, um, oh, that's where the quote was actually. Let me flip over here. Section, okay. 
The Pharisees are the case study in legalism from the New Testament. Their name means separated ones, and their stance became synonymous with legalism. I'm going to skip a little bit here. Old school legalism wondered, what's in your refrigerator? Concerned that you might be harboring beer or wine. The new school wonders, what's in your driveway? Which I thought was kind of an interesting thing. I haven't, I'm not familiar with this what's in your driveway, you know, are, are you driving something really, really fancy? And that's a sign that you're um, being frivolous with God's money or something. I don't know. I'm, I'm not familiar with that, but maybe that's a new, a new uh, form of quote unquote legalism anyway, but he does define legalism. So I'll give him credit for that. He at least uh, makes that attempt. A lot of times I see legalism used in this way and it's not I, I don't believe it's the right definition of legalism. He states, legalism has defi- been defined in various ways. That's true. But can be summarized as attempting to gain spiritual acceptance before God by outward conformity to the man-made rules of the day. So spiritual acceptance before God by outward conformity to the man-made rules of the day. Now, I don't really like that definition. Uh, When you think through legalism, you know, you need to think through Galatians. You need to think through, oh, how, how can I be reconciled to God? Oh, I know how I need to be reconciled to God. I need to do something, all right? And I don't know, maybe there's some people out there that said, well, you know, you need to not drink so then you can be saved. But I'm not very familiar with those people. So I personally don't believe that a believer should drink alcohol. Um, I kind of, I studied through this a long time ago. And uh, I'm just going to kind of paint a little different scenario for you. I remember um, (laughs) Sunday school teacher teaching, you know, when Jesus turned the water into wine, it wasn't really wine. It was grape juice. Did you guys ever hear that one? No? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. We've talked about this. (laughs) Did I talk to you about this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of laughable because people are like, well, it obviously says wine there. And, uh, you know, Mark Driscoll, he, um, he has this little quote. I have it here. I, I looked it up. He states, so I never drank alcohol until I was 30 years of age. About that time, I was studying the scriptures for a sermon about Jesus's first miracle of turning water into wine. My Bible study convicted me of my sin of abstinence from alcohol. That's kind of interesting terminology, Driscoll. Well, Driscoll's been, what's the word? Um, <laughs> discredited. Is that a nice way to put it? But and <laughs> anyway, he his Not sin really of sure. abstinence. Um, so in repentance, he states, <clears throat> I drank a hard cider over lunch with our worship pastor. Now, I just want to point out to you, you know, John 2, Jesus turning the water into wine. That, that story has actually been misunderstood simply because people look at the Greek word oinos and then they say, that means wine. And then they say, well, that means that wine that Jesus turned the water into is what you would go buy at the grocery store. You actually need to study through that Greek word oinos. And I translated through a portion of Aristotle's metaphysics. And in the section, in one section of Aristotle's metaphysics, he states, Oinos is an interesting substance. Sometimes it's earthy, and when you boil it, it congeals like jelly. Okay, so what, what kind of oinos do we have there? Juice. Juice. 
Okay. <laughs> and then there, it, then Aristotle says, and sometimes when you boil it, it, it it's uh, airy and it evaporates. Okay. So what kind of oinos do we have there? An alcoholic oinos. See, so the oinos, the, the, Jesus may, may very well have turned the water into grape juice. I'm actually not sure. I've vacillated back and forth. I don't think it solves the, the problem, but it illustrates how many people really don't, they make a false analogy. They say, oh, oinos is this. And then they yeah. go to the grocery store or wherever and go to the bar and they have a drink and they think that oh, that's okay. So maybe I'll revisit this at some point, but I just want to illustrate with, with Nemers what he's doing in the book. There's no logical arguments for his position. The book is a very emotional book. I cried in it hearing about his wife passing away uh, and him having to tell his children about that. Uh, I mean, he has gone through some serious trials and he has had to draw close to the Lord. And I don't want to diminish those things, but at the same time, his positions, I disagree with them. And, um, and he's not making logical arguments for his views. They're an emotional appeal. So I don't know. We have the book available in the bookstore. Uh, if you want to read it for yourself, you can go ahead and check that out. So what you're saying is, it's like as he talks about these retractions, this would not be a resource to put on the bookshelf as a resource to talk about those issues. Like you would never pull this off and be like, well, here's a great argument for why or why not you would drink or right. why or why not you would teach this view on divorce and remarriage. Like that's not the purpose and you really shouldn't look at it in that way. Right. right? And, and on the legalism one, I particularly highlighted that one because he, uh, he hit on that one in alcohol and basically, <laughs> you know, he's indirectly saying I'm a legalist because I, according to his definition of legalism, uh, because I don't believe a Christian should drink alcohol. Um, but the marriage and divorce one, where he changes his view on that one, he says a few times, hey, you know what? You need to study this out for yourself and come to your own conclusion based upon the word of God. So I'll give him credit there. You know, he, he does say sure. you need to figure it out for yourself. Uh, well, on the alcohol issue, I think similarly, you need to figure that out for yourself and don't settle for a few blog posts. Yeah. Andy, you want to give us a quick little uh, snippet what this episode is going to be about? Sure. I was studying out the word meditation in the Old Testament. And since I'm a Greek guy, I was looking at this A Septuagint. And so I was tracing down some words for meditate that the Old Testament text used to translate uh, that Hebrew phrase for the young kids who didn't speak Hebrew. And I thought it was very helpful in getting you to think through what are the aspects of meditation. And since the Bible in the New Testament talks about meditating and renewing your mind, I think it'll be a profitable episode for you. Let's have a conversation about meditation today. Now, I know I've been going on a series about death, and perhaps the only way that this will be related to that series is that you should be thinking about death, and this episode will be about thinking. Uh, but what happened is in my devotions, I was on, I have a Bible reading plan, and like you probably have happened, has happened to you before, I decided to divert from it and go back to one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 1. It's always good. And so as I was reading Psalm 1, I'll just go ahead and read it to you. And there's the word meditate in verse 2. That's what we're mainly going to talk about in the rest of this episode. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, 
that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he, that he does, he prospers. Now, it's there's only three more verses, but for sake of time, I'm going to skip them for now. So as I was reading through the first couple of verses, there's the metaphor of the walking and the standing and the sitting in the various elements of the life of the wicked people. And then in verse two, you have the word but, which is a contrast word. And so David is going to contrast the way of the wicked with the way of the righteous. His delight is contrasted and his delight is in the law. Now, it's interesting that he's talking about what the wicked do, like what they're doing. But then when he contrasts it, he talks about what the righteous delight in. So that's interesting. And then it says, on his law, he meditates. And so part of me thought that meditates and delight are maybe parallel here. So you delight in the law. How do you delight in the law? Well, one of the ways you delight is by meditating on it. And I like the word meditation. I mean, obviously, we're on a podcast called Thinkling, so we're va- we value the life of the mind. And I've always wanted to do a study on this, and so I thought, oh, I'm just going to go ahead and look this up. So, listener, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through definitions uh, for our episode. And the definitions are going to come from three different dictionaries. And I'm going to start with the English definition, which is what I always start with. Now, Charlie said a couple of podcast episodes away ago, you should never start with that. I actually disagree, but that's because I'm talking to English Bible study people. Listen, if you don't know what the definition of the word is, there's a reason the translator chose that English word. Charlie's getting ready to shoot. Here's the problem. I don't know all the definitions to English words. There's two definitions to this word in English. Charlie's going to jump in. Insert a caveat. Caveat. Okay, so I'll, I'll, thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> I will, the, the reason I say you shouldn't start there is in context. Like when you're studying a biblical word, when you try to define the Bible word, you shouldn't start in an English dictionaries because the English dictionary is not actually talking about the Bible word. So... If, but if you're, if you're just trying to look at an English word, and I would have no problem with what you're saying, because you're trying to understand what meditate means in English. But if you're trying yes. to find out what it means in either Hebrew or Greek, oh, yeah, no, and you went to no. an English dictionary first, you would have yeah. some issues there. I just had That's a listener, I I had a listener take your thought and think that they can't use the dictionary to look words up when they're studying their Bible. And I don't think that's what you meant, right? Context is very important. Yeah. I, that's not what yep. I was saying. Yeah. So, so we're going to look at the English dictionary first. All right. So the term meditate in English means that there's two definitions. The first one is to engage in contemplation or reflection. The example sentence is he meditated long and hard before announcing his decision. The second definition, however, is this to engage in a mental exercise, such as concentration on one's breathing or a repetition of a mantra for the purpose of reaching a heightened level of spiritual awareness. Now, here's where you really do need to think through which one of those definitions did the translator mean. And this is where it does help to look at a commentary or a Greek or Hebrew dictionary if you have access to it. Now, that second definition there, does that remind you of any kind of meditation, guys? Is there like a meditation that that reminds you of? Your a heightened level of spiritual mm-hmm. awareness. Mm-hmm. It's like no? this Eastern mysticism kind of an idea. Yep. Yeah. So growing up, this is what I thought meditation was. 
I only had the Eastern mystical definition. And so listener, you might hear the word meditate and maybe that's the only definition you've been exposed to. That's really important to note. The Bible is not talking about that here. The Bible is going to be talking about the other definition and there's going to be some more detail to it. So I want to distinguish between two kinds of meditation here. I'm going to call one Eastern meditation, which is like Hindu, Buddhist, etc. I'm going to call the other one, for lack of a better term, cognitive meditation, like a mind word, mindish to quote Tim from season one. Like you're thinking, it's, it's a thoughtful, intellectual, like in your brain kind of a thought. Okay. So what I did next is, I thought, well, let's look up the Hebrew term. And so the Hebrew term here is a word called, uh, is the word haga. And my Hebrew is rusty, so I had to ask Dr. Little how to pronounce it. This was fascinating, actually. And this is where Dr. Little, I'm going to rely on his correction if I've got anything wrong. So the word itself, in its root, kind of means to mutter a recitation. So if, when, when I think of reciting something and I'm muttering it to myself, I think of memorization. I don't know about you guys. So if I'm trying to memorize a Bible verse, it's like I'm saying it over and over and over again to myself. If someone mutters... Like, what does that mean? Like, when do people normally mutter? Or what's like an example of muttering? You guys have any ideas? I mean, part of me was thinking through your Eastern mysticism type of a thing, where they like... Okay, yep. That could be one. That could be one way, yep. So when people mutter? Yeah. Often I think muttering is more like complaining. They muttering and complaining. Yeah, and when you complain, do you always complain at full volume? And then they also are doing it again and again and again and again. Okay. So you've ever heard the phrase like he muttered under his breath? Mm -hmm. So I think I like that because you're saying it kind of quietly to yourself. Mm -hmm. So as you go down in the definition, the dictionary actually says in Psalm 1-2, like the, the, a good way to translate this is to read with an undertone. So what I was trying to figure out is what that means. Does that mean like when you talk to yourself, you're kind of talking quietly to yourself? For me, when I'm like thinking through something, I generally talk it out. So I don't know, Tim, do you think that's fair to see this word as sort of meaning the same thought process that's going on when you're talking to yourself because you're thinking something through? In some use, in some, sometimes the word definitely has a vocal connotation. And so the idea is, is that it's an action that's done again and again and again and again. Okay, so like you're reciting something. Yeah, okay. or you're just kind of scheming or plotting. In fact, the same words used in Psalm 2. Yeah, that's and that's going to come up. Oh, yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. It's an interesting uh, semantic range, as they say to the word. Mm-hmm. But uh, I do think if you're, if you're stepping back, I think all these would lend itself to situations where you're giving careful thought to something. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like pouring out of your speech at like a low level. Does that sound fair when I look at this word in your yeah, opinion? Yeah, and in particularly in Psalm 1 and 2, the word in both instances is like you're trying to figure something out. You're yeah, contemplating yes. thinking about yes. it. Okay, so here's what I was thinking of. It's like, I, it's not a biblical example, but when I go like to the grocery store and I like, sometimes I write a list out. I, I mean, I don't actually write a list. I have it on my phone. But what will I do as I'm like going into the store? Oh, this is great. And it is, it is a mental repetition Mm -hmm. of, I need this, 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 this. But then there are times where I will mutter that like to myself, like, okay, I need eggs. I need Mm -hmm. milk. I need this. And like, you know, you you were like, you know, I'm doing that under my breath and, but it it is a mental activity. Yeah. And the, the muttering is, is, is like a way of remembering what I need to remember. 
So, yeah. And in, in, in all these situations, what's interesting is like the Eastern style is, is sometimes and their variants. Sometimes it's to empty your mind of anything and just let ideas pop up that up from your subconscious. Sometimes it's to say like vainly repeated phrases over and over and over again to reach a level of enlightenment. But all of those are in a, in a, in a, I'm going to riff off of your term, Tim. They're all unmindish. Does that make sense? Like unmindish. They're not, they're, you're not actually trying to engage in thought. You're sort of trying to like let things passively come upon you. But I think the idea here is that you're actively mentally doing something. And my thought is that if someone had the wrong idea in Psalm one, when they heard that word meditate, they might think they read it and they just kind of like sit back and let it happen. But I, I think maybe we can show that the scripture writers might have imagined some more active mental chewing, thinking, questioning, pondering. So I'm going to try to show that, but I'm going to do it in a way that I'm not sure you're all going to like. So we'll see. So what I did next is I looked up the Greek term. Now you might say, Andy, you're in the Old Testament. What are you doing? Hey, I've got a Septuagint. So listener. But what, but what is <laughs> the Septuagint? <clears throat> hey, 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 don't divert us. We got to get through this. So I have a Septuagint I was using. And the Septuagint is just a Greek translation of the Old Testament that the generation after the exile made for their kids because they didn't speak Hebrew. And if there's only one version and it was authoritative and they always used only that one, Charlie. Okay, listener, that's all wrong, but Charlie did a big project on it and he can barely hold himself from saying something that's not relevant to what my point is. Hey, you know what? If I was to make a comment at this point, it'd be like taking an egg and throwing it in (laughs) to a pot of chili. And I know what you're thinking. Well, that might be good. It also might not be good. So why risk it? Don't put the egg in the chili. So yeah, we don't really know if that'll help our conversation, so we're not going to risk it. That's great. Charlie, I'm giving you three emojis for that. That was well done. They're all egg emojis, by the way. No, two eggs and one chili emoji. Listen to this. Is, anyways. All right. So here. So what I did is I looked up the Greek translation or a Greek translation of the Old Testament in this passage. And the Greek word used is melatao. Melatao. Now it sounds like melatonin. It's not related to the root. It does. I thought maybe it was related to that, but melatonin. Actually, I looked this up. Comes from like the word for melon, like melatonin in your or melanin in your skin. There's something related to that in your body that also controls your sleep cycle. Hmm. So unfortunately, it's not related, but that's okay. But for listeners who wonder that, I did look that up. So when I look this verb up in the Greek dictionary, I'm expecting to see melatao in the New Testament. Okay, and I'm expecting to see all of the dictionary examples relate to the New Testament. Here's the definition. Uh, the first definition is to work for something, to uh, definite in the mind, to take care, to endeavor. The second definition is to improve by care or by study, practice, to cultivate, to take pains with. Uh, now that one is from 1 Timothy 4.15, so that's where it does occur in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 4.15, take pains with. I love that verse. Then you get to the third definition, to fix one's mind on something, to think about it, to meditate upon it. And wouldn't you know, the examples given here, one of the main examples is actually Psalm 2-1. So like that, and we're going to get to that one here in a minute. So this word, I think this is the definition you're seeing in Psalm 1 as well, to fix your mind on something, to think about it, to meditate on. So it's really interesting that I think in my notes, I have that backwards, but what I'm saying is it's near to there. So to fix your mind on something, 
to think about it, okay, to focus on it. This is the opposite of that like Eastern style meditation that went around when the New Age movement was really popular. The reason I'm bringing this up too is paganism is back, it's coming back, like New Age, mysticism, all that stuff is happening again. Okay, so what I did then, and this is interesting, listener, if you've ever done a Bible word study, is I searched the New Testament and the Old Testament for this word. It only occurred like two or three times in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, it was all over. So Joshua 1.8 in the Greek translation. These are all Greek translations, okay? This Melitao word. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Now, again, that's the classic verse that everyone's memorized. But that's this word, at least the Greek version is, to meditate. So when those Hebrews were translating their words into Greek, they chose in this passage, Melitao. Then you have Psalm 1-2. That's our text today, uh, that you meditate on the law day and night. Interestingly, Psalm 2-1 says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot? And so plotting is actually the translation of this word in that verse. So, But think about plotting something. You're planning something out. You're calculating. You're trying to do something. Uh, I guess, Tim, I didn't look the Hebrew words up here, so if you find anything interesting, dive right in. Now, there's a lot of verses here. I just I want to give a couple of more examples. Psalm 37.13 says this, Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. Listener, I just want to ask a question. Is there ever a time where your thoughts have been so consumed on something that you've thought of it all day long? So I know for me, if there's something that's really concerning or really difficult or a trial I'm going through, or if there's something I'm really frustrated about, this was kind of convicting. Because here these evil men are plotting and meditating all, na- all day long on their evil. And it just it occurred to me that when I'm worried about something, essentially I'm meditating on it all day long. I'm meditating on what might happen. I'm meditating on what I can't control. I'm meditating on how bad it could be. I'm meditating on uh, how can I fix it? How can I change it? How can I manipulate it? And it's not to say just throw a reckless abandon to your life, but when God talks about worry and anxiety, I think when we struggle with that, what we're actually doing is taking this concept of meditation and just focusing it on the wrong thing. So I do think if you struggle with anxiety, you're actually really, really good at biblical meditation. You're just using it toward fleshly fears. So I thought that was interesting just to see the way this word was used in different contexts. Now, at the same time, in Psalm 62, 7, David uses the word here, and this is another classic verse. When I remember you upon my bed and I meditate on you in the watches of the night. That's actually a good example of meditation. And I've actually tried to apply this um, when I wake up and I have anxiety or something over a big project or there's something I wake. Sometimes when you're really stressed and you wake up at night, it's hard to go back to bed. And what I would say is that I've tried to pray in those times. And that's been a great uh, blessing and a a means of grace that God's uh, used in my life. But what I'm doing is I'm turning and instead of meditating on what I can't control and my fears, in prayer, I'm meditating on God's character and seeking to trust him. So again, these are just examples where we use our mind actively in directions to think about what God wants. 
All right. Psalm 76, 13. I will ponder. Ponder, there's our word, meritao. I will ponder all your work and med- oops, sorry, and meditate on your mighty deeds. Sorry, I got the wrong word. Meditate is in the second half of that. Uh, Psalm 89.9 says this, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We will bring our years to an end like a sigh. The word sigh there is actually <clears throat> this word for meditate. And I, I, Tim, did you mention that on an episode a while back? Did I get that right or was that a different verse? That's Psalm 90 verse okay. 9. Okay. So your verses, this you kind of jumped into a bit of an issue. Your verses are all about a chapter off because you're using the Septuagint's um, okay. insurance chapters. Oh, just I so see. You know. So that's Psalm 90. Okay. So listener, I've, I've got all my, because I didn't understand how the Septuagint did that. Oops. You're fine. But it's only one Septuagint. There's one universal Septuagint <laughs> that's used. So it's funny. Tim will groan or eye roll. Charlie's doing like the, the like almost going to explode. It's, it's, it's like it hurts him mentally. Okay. We're moving on. So, uh, Tim, you might want to interpret which, where the Psalm actually is. So there's your 10 off, like 10 Just, lower. Uh, one. So you're in Psalm 89, nine in the Septuagint mm-hmm. is Psalm 90 verse nine in the English. In the English. Okay. ESV. The, la- the last couple Psalms have been that way. That way. Here's okay. off one. Off one, not 10, not 10, just one. Okay. Just one. All right. I don't understand, but I'm going to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, in Psalm one eighteen sixteen, is that one correct? I don't think so. I think it's one nineteen. One nineteen. Okay, there mm-hmm. I understand. One nineteen. I'll read it that way. Sixteen. Is that the pure man? How does a man keep his way pure? Uh, no, this one. Oh, that that might be. This one says, "I will delight in your statutes." Yeah, that is Psalm one nineteen. Yeah. And I will not forget your words. Delight there, I believe, is melatao. So it's interesting to delight in something. So that makes me wonder. Back in Psalm 1, and this is a question for you, Tim, when he says in verse 2, I delight, like he delights in your law and he meditates on your, or he delights in your word and meditates on your law. Is there like a play on words there in Hebrew? Because here in the English, they actually translated delight, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. If you're not coming up with anything, we can no, move on. No, I don't think so. But yeah, but I'm that not word sure. delight, there's a couple of times this word is translated as delight. So I wonder, does that mean, think about it when you delight in something, you are mentally thinking about it though. Does that make sense? Like if I delight uh-huh. in something, I have thoughts about it. I, I'm not just like emoting. I'm actually delighting with my mind. In fact, I was trying to think about it like this. If I couldn't use my mind, could I still delight in things? Because delight almost has a active element to it. It's not as passive, in my opinion. So I thought that was interesting. I'll mm-hmm. maybe share like uh, one more here. In Isaiah 33, 18, which is probably 34, 18, because the Septuagint issue. Mm-hmm. He says this, your heart will muse on terror. Where is he who accounted? Where he is he who weighed the, weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? And here it's almost like a worry. And that's where I was getting that idea of worry earlier. And it, there's muse, muse, mourn, moan, mutters. Anyways, I just thought this was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, when you go to the New Testament, I can only find it in two places. In my notes, I have one. In 1 Timothy 4.15, take pains with these things, meditate on these things, dwell on these things. And then in Mark 13.11, it said it was there, but when you look, it's not. It's a variant reading. So there's a variant where Melitao is there. All right, so here's my question. And maybe I'm way off. I'll find out, listener. It seems like this word's used 
somewhat regularly in the Old Testament. And I understand we're talking Septuagint translation here. So whoever was translating that version of the Septuagint many times used melatao to communicate these ideas of thinking or pondering or musing or mentally chewing on or, or delighting, okay? And all of those have like a mental component to them. So my thought is, is there anywhere in the New Testament that may not use this word melatao, but it might have a similar uh, parallel idea going on? A parallel, like a similar parallel idea going on. Here, here, let me explain. I'll explain it more and then I'll give you my example. Okay. If Hebrews, like Hebrew people, were familiar with many of these verses and they understood that they should be thinking and dwelling and pondering on God's word, and then we have the New Testament, which is written by Hebrews who have been saved, know the Lord, I would expect that that mental focus on thinking and delighting and loving God with our mind would not just go away. I would expect it to be present elsewhere in the New Testament. So where else in the New Testament would you see at least parallel thoughts or ideas? So my first one is in one of my favorite passages, Colossians chapter 3. It says, if you've been raised with Christ, so the idea here is if you've been saved, set your or seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, if you seek something, I think you're aiming at it. And I think there has to be a mental aspect where you're thinking about it. You're like, that's what I'm going to pursue. And then you're trying to figure out how to pursue it. It's a, it's a mental process. Okay. In the second verse there, it says, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. So there, it almost brings up the idea that you mentally could be setting your mind on the wrong things, which is where I think in the Old Testament verses, we saw worry being part of the way you could meditate. So I think those are two parallels. I'm not saying it's the same, but I think the idea persists from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Do you guys have any other thoughts in the New Testament, like examples where you'd think like, I think this is kind of parallel to what was going on in all those Old Testament verses when it comes to meditate? My first text that comes to mind is just Romans 12. Okay. Okay. Explain that one. So, um, do not be conformed to this world, be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. So there's this intellectual activity that transpires, which is part of that transformation process, which battles and combats that con the natural conformity that we have to this world. So um, that was the one correspondence okay. that I thought of off the top of my head. And I like that one. I think that's a, I think it's a very central one. I think that's mm -hmm. part of what he's thought, his thought process is, in my opinion. Okay, sorry. I went down a wormhole with like this. Words. <laughs> the Septuagint. I'm Septuagint. Oh, good job. Uh, I'm still muted. So I'll just repeat what I just said. Um, I went down a wormhole on my phone of like trying to look up words. And so can you repeat the question to me? Yep. So in the Old Testament, we see this idea of thinking and meditating. We see this idea that we give careful thought to things. That's part of the way we might delight in something or ponder something. You can do it wrongly by musing on it. Go ahead. So I just thought of another one would be maybe uh, Philippians 2. Uh, set your mind or have the mind of Christ. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Have the mind of Christ. Mm -hmm. That's good. So, so then the thought is, if that is all in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, this verb, melatao, is very infrequent. 
did the idea of chewing on or pondering or thinking or delighting, did that just go away? Or are there areas in the New Testament where what they're saying might be different words, but it's the same idea? And you, what are the ones we've already mentioned? Colossians 3, Romans 12, and you just mentioned Philippians 2, having the mind of Christ. Mm -hmm. So, so as far as like the idea of like meditating, like, Mm -hmm. um, this might be a little bit of a stretch, but like to continue thinking about something, there is a, a an emphasis in the Gospels. Or maybe I won't. It comes up in multiple places. I'm pretty sure, but probably all in John. But like abiding, continuing in, mm. like abide in me. Like and so it's it's not like not in a sense of like mentally meditating on like certain things, but I think that idea of con- like to meditate day and night, like to continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could go down that r- route and get some ideas, but uh, then Second Timothy two, uh, he shares these illustrations of like the the hardworking farmer and the mm-hmm. soldier and the athlete, and he says, "Think about these things." Yeah, and I don't know, was that one? Is that on your list? No, it's not on my list. Okay, yeah. good job. Um, but that that's I th- I thought Tim for sure was gonna <laughs> use that one. I know because he's he's used that passage. <laughs> and you didn't already. use it, and then you're like. Oh, wait, wait. You had another one. I'm like, ah, he's going to take it from me. That one's a good one. Yeah. Even in, oh, go ahead, Tim. Well, you have that Greek word. We've actually talked about this word, the nous or nuos, the mind, phroneto, to set the mind. Yep. Um, So Romans 8 talks about setting one's mind on the things of the flesh and how it needs to be set upon the things of the spirit. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, So I don't know. That's what I've got. I think that's interesting because... It's, it's weird. So is this just the power of positive thinking? <laughs> is this just, uh, what, what is the idea that you visualize it and then it becomes reality? Is that really all it's talking about? Is like, that it? Is that what we should walk away with? Because the other one I was going to mention was Philippians 4, where he lists these virtues. Mm. And then he ends it with, think on these things. And the verb there is logizomai, which I think that's the verb for calculate or to count or to reason or to reckon. But again, I mean, that's the word you'd use for like, I believe that's the word you use if you're like an accountant to like calculate things. So I think here's where I'm going with this. Today in Christianity, if we read our Bible, or we have something challenging or difficult and we think about it for too long and nothing happens, I, th- I think we assume something is wrong or broken. And maybe there is, maybe we got some wrong thoughts in our mind. And then when we sit down to do our devotions, I think maybe sometimes in Branch to Christianity, we lean into the emotional side of things. And that's not wrong. Like emotions are not wrong. They're not the enemy. But what I would say is that I think there's a lot of testimony in the Bible that God's given us the ability to think. And so I think this just demonstrates that we should be engaging in that in some way. Now, I don't think you can think yourself to God, okay? I'm not a rationalist. And I don't think that mere thought is all that's needed. I think you have to be in your will submitted to God and seeking to please him. But if you are there, then I think biblical meditation is something that you should consider. Um, what maybe some questions you might ask yourself is, uh, what do you seek and what do you dwell on? What does delight you? What do you ponder? 
What do you muse? Uh, a lot of these questions where you see these thinking words, you, you can always just flip it around and say, well, I'm supposed to think on this is what the Bible says. Hmm, what do I think on? None of us is uh, unthinking. None of us don't think. None of us like are not are thoughtless, okay? We always have thoughts. I think what the Bible would ask you is, what are you rehearsing over? Like, what are you dwelling on? What are you rehashing? What are you... Uh, repeating over and over to yourself, that can indicate what your heart is set on. And so you do need to direct your heart. You need to humble yourself before the Lord. Uh, but this might be one way to see where your heart is. And then the other thing is, it's not, it's maybe a low key argument that it's good to read books about the Bible and it's good to read the Bible and talk about it with friends and to think. And I, I do think that this sort of a study does justify. Uh, maybe even having a reading group and reading good books, talk about it with your friends, maybe even like this sort of a podcast and what we try to do. Do you guys have any final thoughts before we end? No, I think that's a great reminder of what we're trying to do and encourage on the podcast, thinking, mm -hmm. thinking. So listener, if you'd like to meditate, if you'd like to delight, if you'd like to dwell on and muse, get yourself in the Bible, open it up, read it, Think about it. If you have questions, don't stop there. Get a book, get a commentary, or just talk to your pastor. And dwell in God's word and truly delight in him. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.